Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Today, we have a really important show for you. Um, As you are aware, if you listen to this podcast regularly, we cover new movies and new songs and great artists and authors. And today, we do have a very important author, um, but even elevating it beyond the book that is coming out is really the subject matter of the book, which deals very heavily with LGBTQ youth homelessness and the particular circumstances that these kids find themselves in, and one man's heroic efforts to do something about that, and as an inspiration for any of its readers to get involved and do that as well. Um, Today we're going to talk to a couple of highly notable LGBTQ advocates and activists. Uh, We have on the line, waiting in the decks, Oh, my God, it's Joe My God. Um, Joe My God, Joe Jarvis, is probably one of the best-known and best-read and well-written blog sphere guys around and has been doing it for almost two decades. He just celebrated 19 years on his very popular blog. And if you've been around like I have and other people in the community, that has been our go-to place for new and breaking news. Um, He has won a ton of awards. And um, last year on his 19th anniversary, he said, and I quote, we're at 138, 342,000 posts over 19 years, the last 15 of which have been without a full day off, although posting on weekends is usually a slow rate. As I've said on this day every year, whether I am insanely committed or am insane and should be committed, that is entirely your call. And um, we're just a fan. So um, we, we think it's great and not sure what we would do without um, Joe, my God, um, telling us what's going on. Um, and as, as well as the L.A. Blade. Is this, uh, can't forget that because the uh, podcast here is produced by... Brody Levesque, the editor of Los Angeles Blade, which is another go-to news source that you should be checking out every single day. But also on tow um, with, uh, and one of our main focus of today's show, is our guest, uh, Carl Siciliano. Carl is the author of an upcoming book called Making Room. Um, Carl was named a White House Champion of Change by Barack Obama and he is a nationally recognized advocate and provider for homeless LGBT youth. He has been dedicated to this population since 1994. His career began by helping manage shelters, soup kitchens, and residential programs for homeless individuals in New York, Washington, D.C., and Connecticut. In 2002, Carl founded the Ali Forner Center, AFC, in memory of Ali Forner, a homeless, gender non-conforming youth who was killed in the streets of Harlem in New York City. The AFC has grown to be, 
has grown to become the largest agency dedicated to LGBTQ plus homeless youth in the country and assists over 2,000 youth per year through a 24-hour drop-in center, medical and mental health service, and a scattered uh, site housing program. The book, Making Room, um, Carl tells the story of Ali and um, the inspiration that Ali put on Carl or uh, drove Carl with um, went before Ali was murdered and then afterwards Carl went on to create the home where unhoused teens could be loved and feel cared for. Um, the story of the book is about the center, about the adventures of putting the center together, the trials and tribulations of the center, and most importantly, calling attention to the issue that still is unresolved in this country. Um, each year, as many as 4.2 million youth and young adults experience homelessness in the United States. Of these, 70,000 are estimated to, to be unaccompanied minors, which means they're not accompanied by a parent or guardian. 40% of them are estimated to be LGBTQ. LGBTQ youths are more than twice as likely to experience homelessness as straight youths. Homeless LGBTQ kids face higher rates of violence in the streets and shelter system. They experience higher rates of trauma, mental illness, and substance abuse. This specific group of youths are especially vulnerable to victimization in large warehouse-style shelter settings. Some even endure attempts at conversion therapy in religious shelters. That's the issue at hand, and that is um, part of the subjects of what we'll be talking about today. First, however, I do want to welcome on Brody Levesque. Brody is, um, as I said, the producer of the show and the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, which you should be reading at losangelesblade.com. And with uh, our latest breaking stories, Brody, what's going on? Hey, good afternoon, Rob, and uh, hi to all of our listeners around the world. We appreciate you listening to our podcast. Uh, Carl and Joe are both in New York, and one of the lead stories out of New York today was a very important and sad funeral service uh, for probably one of the most history-making transgender activists um, in New York City history. Cecilia Genetilli uh, had her services in another historic New York landmark, uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral. So this is extremely uh, noteworthy because the Roman Catholic uh, Cathedral of St. Patrick has just not been very friendly institution to the LGBTQ community, let alone the Archdiocese itself. 1,400-plus uh, mourners came to memorialize and honor genitalia at St. Pat's, uh, which is in the Midtown uh, Manhattan neighborhood of the city, uh, one of the lead uh, celebrants uh, in honor of the memorial. Uh, was actor, singer, and playwright Billy Porter, uh, who starred alongside um, Cecilia uh, in Pope's. Uh, Cecilia, however, is much more than just an actress. She was an organizer. She was an HIV advocate. She was a community icon. She founded uh, the Transgender Equity Consulting Service. She founded another service within uh, a healthcare group. Uh, she made such an important impact um, especially for queer uh, sex workers, 
she fought hard uh, in efforts to decriminalize. Uh, when she passed away a week ago, uh, it was really, really hard on everybody. She was very young. She was only 52. But I think it says something that Cecilia was honored, not only just by having her memorial service at a place which has historically and traditionally been very, very anti-queer LGBTQ, but also that even New York's governor and others uh, honored her, her memory, and the work that she's done. So um, if you're interested in watching some of the live stream, it's at the Los Angeles Blade, or you could read about what happened today in New York City. I think it was really, really important. Uh, I'm going to shift to something that came up uh, in this last week. The Speaker of the Michigan House of Representatives, uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Joe Tate, and I will note that Joe's a black American, stripped a member of the House, a Republican, Josh Shriver, uh, of his office expenses, his office, his staff, uh, and basically, you know, said, yeah, you can come vote, but that's all you're going to get. Um, Tate said uh, in a statement, in an email uh, to myself and other members of the media, that Representative Shriver has deeply and personally offended the Michigan House of Representatives. Well, how he did it is what he's continued to do. By the way, he's attacked our community. He's attacked trans. He's attacked drag. But he has subscribed to far right-wing commentator Jack Posobiec's replacement theory memes and things that, you know, that rubbish that keeps coming out in far right. It's all over uh, X. It's on Gab. It's on a lot of these other far right things. They call it the great replacement theory, which we heard a lot of back in 2017 in Charlottesville, where that 33-year-old young lady was killed uh, at the Unite the Right rally. It's the same thing. Um, but what Schreiber was doing was is he was basically reposting uh, Postvik's garbage all over his site. Uh, he was warned by the Speaker of the House, you know, you need to tone it down. Please undo this. He basically came back with a, well, in a very polite way, kind of a screw you. It's not happening. Michigan's governor actually jumped into this one, too. Um, and she backed up the uh, the actions uh, of the House Speaker. Now, notably, it should be pointed out that all these racist memes and all this other nonsense, the Michigan Republican Party and the Republican leadership in the Michigan House has remained absolutely silent, not a word. So, you know, when you find yourself in a position like the House Speaker did where you strip a sitting representative of staff, expenses, and all nine yards, you're sending a clear signal. But we're seeing more and more and more of this type of pile-on. This particular guy was on our radar screen because some of the, you know, things that he said, uh, he's retweeted stuff from our least favorite Brooklyn real estate agent, Chad Rack, who's better known as the libs at TikTok. Uh, she's retweeted some of his garbage. Uh, he's gone after drag. He's gone after trans. And then again, there's all this racist black stuff that this guy does. He's just, you know, yeah. Anyway, um, unsurprisingly, he comes from a solid red district in Michigan, which is about 85% white. 
uh, and voted for Trump in the last election. I'll let you guys do the math. Um, we have a couple of other things I just wanted to note real quick before we go to our guests. Um, Colorado Children's Hospital uh, in Aurora has been sued after they refused a transgender, an 18-year-old, perfectly adult, trans male, okay, gender-affirming surgery. Um, the American Civil Liberties Union of Colorado followed the lawsuit uh, yesterday on February 14th. Um, and essentially, at the end of the day, what happened was uh, this young man had gone through all the bells, hoops, and whistles to get his health care and insurance and everything paid up. He had literally gotten insurance authorization for the procedure, and then suddenly Children's Hospital canceled him out and said, oh, no, you don't. Now, I should note, Children's Hospital, which is a rather large system of loosely affiliated hospitals, has been at the forefront of the attacks by the far right on trans surgeries, trans hormone replacement therapy, and gender-affirming care. Every time Libs of TikTok opens up, okay, and off she goes, we see bomb threats, death threats, and threats of credible violence is what the FBI says. Um, I am not justifying, but nor am I surprised, the Children's Hospital at the last minute backed off. I'm assuming that it's going to come out uh, in court that probably one of the reasons they did this was because they didn't want to make themselves a target. This is not the first time we've seen it. But at the same time, this is kind of indicative of where we're at nationally in the discussions over, you know, trans youth especially and their health care, uh, their very existence uh, in many, many cases. Um, accompany this uh, in Virginia. Uh, two separate lawsuits were filed against the state of Virginia's Department of Education for basically putting out Governor Glenn, I always screw that up, Governor Glenn Youngkin's uh, policy, which basically marginalizes the trans uh, gender youth uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So we're starting to see some pushback. We're starting to see some action in that space. But at the same time, we're also seeing a lot of opposition and we're seeing a lot of things uh, go south. Um, as you know, Rob, here in California, uh, the state attorney general has filed suit in two separate cases, one an injunction temporarily, at least for now, and one against two school boards uh, that are populated by neoconservatives. One, as a matter of fact, sits uh, in the parish, if you will, of Jack Hibbs, who is a notorious evangelical uh, far-right extremist, um, and that's Chino. And they had passed trans outing policies for the kids, which is contravening California law. So uh, the AG, Rob Bonta, has gone into court, got an injunction against Chino. Temecula, which is the other school district, has been threatened with a lawsuit from the AG's office if they don't back up. So this is kind of some of the things that we're keeping an eye on today um, as we start uh, to move forward. That's a lot. And a lot going on, and and as horrible as all of that stuff is, and difficult as that is, it doesn't even touch on the subject that we're talking about today. So, um, you know, it's like there's a lot to take in, and a lot of fight that that needs to be occurring on behalf of, um, particularly LGBTQ young people. Um, 
And with that, I do want to welcome to the show um, both our guests at once. Uh, welcome uh, Joe Jarvis and um, Carl Siciliano. Uh, welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, my pleasure. Um, Joe, I kind of want to start with you um, with your um, congratulations on your almost two decades of um, very important finger on the pulse blogging. Um, what, what, how, how has that evolved for you? I know when you first started blogging, you were just kind of doing general musings, and then you started getting to more heartbreaking um, pieces of information that we all started relying on. How did that come about? Well, the, the, the off-told story is that uh, I started the blog when I got kicked off of Manhunt. Uh, because, because instead of using my Manhunt profile space to write the usual, you know, I am this, you have to be that kind of nonsense, I was writing little stories and quips and limericks and finally – the manhunt uh, commander or whatever they called him uh, wrote to me and said, you know, this is supposed to be for hooking up. And I said, why? <laughs> Can it be fun too? They, they, especially didn't like, they, they especially didn't like that I was reproducing the uh, misspelled messages to me uh, because I, I found them very, you know, you know, people would write to me and say, you are hot. Put it in my sexy place. Or something like that. Yeah. You know, and I thought, oh, this is funny. And so I would just, like, list, you know, top ten messages to me this week. Anyway, they kicked me off. And I'm like, all right. So a buddy of mine already had a blog. And he sent me down to Cafe in the West Village. And uh, we uh, brainstormed over what we were going to call it. And 20 years ago, it was very uh, hip to have a blog title that had a pun in it. And because my boss at the time, who was British and very excitable, she was fond of coming up to my desk and dropping a pile of work on me and saying, Joe, my God, you've got to get this done. And so that's <laughs> where the name came from. That's awesome. And I actually love your puns anymore. Yeah, well, everything, everything changes, um, although yours is classic. But I do love the manhunt story because I, I think, you know, there's a, a through line there on how a lot of the LGBTQ experience gets defined by kind of these outer edge applications like grinder and all that as to be like, that's the heart and soul of gay men when it's not, it's just, you know, this, this superficial um, platform and to, to take manhood and try to elevate it to something that is actually witty and thought provoking, you know, God forbid uh, that you do that. <clears throat> I want to, I want to jump fast forward, though, um, um, a good 10 years in, um, in your experience, and this is where um, you've intersected with Carl, because you are in his book, um, in the book, uh, Making Room, you know, you, you do get a section, um, and that is oh, when that's you what I, that's help what I've been told. <laughs> oh, and it's racy. It is just racy. Um, oh, it's great. When you, <laughs> when you uh, jumped in um, after hearing about the drop-in center being destroyed um, in a hurricane. And um, you came riding in on your white horse um, blog to help out. Um, what was that about, and how did they get your attention? 
Well, uh, I, I've been writing about the Alex Borney Center for quite some time by then. Uh, I regularly posted their various pleas for uh, various projects. I promoted their events. I, I attended their events. And, you know, Hurricane Sandy really did a number on New York City. Uh, you don't often think of New York when it comes to hurricanes, but Manhattan in particular and lower Manhattan where the drop-in center was in Chelsea was just a disaster, area, literally a disaster area. The subway system still hasn't recovered entirely. Uh, and so I talked to Carl, and Carl said, you know, we are in desperate straits here. And I put up all the links and, and, a, and a, like a – I think it did, maybe Carl can remember. We had, I think we had a fundraising thermometer sort of thing. And uh, my readers came through wonderfully uh, from all over the country, people who've never even been to New York City. Uh, in part because, you know, a lot of these people had the same experiences that Carl's, Carl's kids do. Uh, a, lot, a lot of my guys, you know, tell horrible stories. These are, you know, readers, readers of mine sometimes in their 50s, 60s, 70s, who tell stories about when they were teenagers in the 60s and 70s and went through very similar things to what the Alley Forney kids do. Uh, and so it, it really struck a chord with them. Um, but, you know, I think also they realize that things can get better for kids today, unlike back then. And that's why they responded so affirmatively. Uh, that's awesome. And um, while we talk about Carl in front of his back, how important is Carl in this book, in your opinion? Well, uh, I, so far I've, I've uh, only gotten the first press release, and I put it out to my readers, and there seemed to be quite a lot of excitement about it. Carl has – has played a fan club uh, on my site. Uh, and uh, not that gay people are shallow and gay men in particular are shallow and stereotypical, but, you know, Carl's not hard to look at. And that helps. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... Can I, 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 can I, I say, jump in for a second? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, think, I think now is the appropriate time, Carl, to jump in. <laughs> I, I just want to... Joe at one – I kind of feel like part of the growth of the Ali Fernet Center has to do with Joe kind of pimping me out because he would always ask me to give him woofy pictures to go along with my appeals. So, you know, I'd be asking for, for help for, for these, you know, kids in desperate situations in, in, in the city, in the streets, and, and somehow there would always have to be like a, <laughs> a sexy picture. <laughs> Uh, no, I was right like said, no, no, Carl. I, I don't want the Alley Forty Center logo. <laughs> I want what want your latest headshot. But well, but, I um, think there was yeah, what Joe referred to. He caused some domestic discord in my in my home because he referred to me as as the mega hunky Carl Siciliano in some posts, which of course I then went and ran and showed to my husband Raymond. And and Raymond's a black man, and he started calling me the mega honky after that as a way to <laughs> diffuse my um my pride or whatever. But, hey, uh, pride, whatever yeah. works. <laughs> well, it's you know it it uh, it it does have that reputation. Although I have to tell you, um, I read the book, and I'm a complete and total fan, and I have no clue what you look like. So um, even Love Is Blind. You know, even even sight unseen. But let's take um, Carl. Let's take you back to the beginning of the story and and you know the real 
crux of the book, uh, where it launches out. And um, tell us about Ali and, and his her story. Sure. So Ali Fournay was, I mean, we didn't really have this language back when I first met Ali in 1994. You know, I imagine that now Ali would identify as non-binary. Um, Ali would present generally as, as a, a man during the daytime and as a, a woman at night. Uh, Ali would do sex work at night. Um, but to understand Ali, I think you really have to understand what it was like for homeless queer youth in New York City at that time in the mid-90s. Um, I was so shocked when I started working at, at, at the Stroppen Center in Times Square where I first met Ali in, in 1994. Um, there was one shelter for homeless youth in, in New York City uh, run by a religious organization, and, and the LGBT youth just really couldn't go there. They would be... Uh, very frequently uh, physically and sexually assaulted uh, and, and many of the staff in the institution uh, would tell them it was their fault if they, they'd stop acting effeminate or stop acting butch or, or you know whatever um, so so the kids were just stranded out on the streets and um, you know they had nowhere to sleep they had no way to support themselves except through usually sex work or, or dealing drugs. Um, New York City was kind of in the throes of, of the, kind of the latter throes of the crack epidemic at that point, and a lot of young people were addicted to drugs. And, and you know, every couple of months, one of the young people we worked with at the Stroppen Center, where I met Ali, would get murdered. And it was just a really sad, brutal, violent, situation and you know there was like no awareness in the city government that that there was you know this crisis of hundreds and hundreds of, of queer youth with nowhere to go and there was very little consciousness of it in the broader LGBT community as well it was sort of a hidden issue at that point um, and so Ali was somebody who had been homeless for about six years at the point that I met them. They, they had been thrown out of their home when they were 13 years old, uh, had spent a few years in, in a variety of foster care systems, but usually were you know, attacked and hurt and violated in those settings. And so by the time they were 16, they just lived on the streets. And I met them when they were 19. Um, but like I say, Ali and, and the other youth at that time were just unbelievably neglected by the powers that be and, and lived very hard, brutal lives. And then tell us what happened with Ali. So shortly after I arrived at, at Safe Space, the drop-in center, um, the gentrification in Times Square started. Uh, that there was like this really intense, concerted effort to drive out the sex workers, to drive out the drug dealers, and to make the neighborhood uh, safe for Disney and corporate America. And historically, it had been a space, a, a community where, where a lot of the street youth kind of survived, uh, you know, as I said, through, through selling drugs and, and through doing sex work. And suddenly, you know, everybody was getting arrested. Like the, the police would just swarm in from, from like 30 different directions and, and they would round up everybody who, who was doing sex work or, or, or selling drugs. And um, so the queer youth in the neighborhood, it kind of pushed them out into um, 
neighborhoods that were less understanding or accepting or less safe for them. And uh, several of Ali's transgender friends were murdered over the course of a year from, you know, 1996 to 1997. Mm. And uh, at the end of 97, in, in December of 97, Ali was, was uh, murdered, shot point blank in the head on 135th Street in Harlem. Mm. Um, you know, and it was just devastating. Uh, Ali was sort of the heart and soul of our community at Safe Space. Uh, Ali was very charismatic, very loving, created a real sense of family with the other homeless youth, uh, created a real sense of family with us staff, uh, was very emotionally unguarded about showing love and, and caring. And we all loved Ali. Uh, and, and, you know, when Ali was murdered, it was just the most devastating experience for all of us, for, for the young people, for, for my coworkers, uh, you know, when I found out that Ali was murdered, it, it, I came to work, uh, got into my office, and, and one of my coworkers, Nancy, walked into my room, shut the door, and told me that Ali had been shot point blank mm. in the head and that they had identified them by by a, a safe space ID card that they had. And, you know, we sat there for a few minutes and made plans for how we were going to cope with this and, and tell the staff and tell the young people. You know, and then when Nancy left my, my office, I just fell to the floor and just cried and cried and mm. cried. I mean, I, I was so devastated by, by, by what had happened to Ali. Um, and, you know, now when I think about the, my book, I, you know, I think it's kind of like the story almost of like getting off the floor and, and figuring out how to honor Ali and keep Ali's memory alive and keep Ali's love alive. Uh, Ali had such a, a way of valuing and caring about the other homeless youth at a time when, when almost nobody did. And that was, you know, it kind of became my my burning inspiration, like, you know, was to somehow keep Ali's love alive and, and, and change the conditions that, that killed Ali. Right. Well, and then you went on and found the, the, the center itself, um, on through that, that, that inspiration or, or motivation. Um, in the book, you do talk about how for decades after the Stonewall uprising, the plight of homeless queer youth, went unseen by the organizations fighting for our community's rights. Um, <clears throat> can you talk a little bit about that? Why was there a blind spot? You know, I, I think it's complicated. Um, I think it's several factors. Uh, you know, one of the things that so fascinates me is that homeless queer youth were like, central in the Stonewall Uprising. Um, you know, people like Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and, and uh, others that, that show up in my book who I actually befriended years later, uh, you know, who were homeless queer youth who fought in the riots. But I, I think that it's hard for an oppressed community to begin to stand up for itself. And I think we needed to tell ourselves a story about how great and liberating and wonderful it was to come out of the closet. 
you know, I think like that was one of the core narratives of, of the early decades after Stonewall was like, you know, if you come out, you will have a good life, you will have freedom, you will have liberation. Um, our, our kids didn't really fit that narrative. It's like they came out and they got thrown out into the streets into utter mm-hmm. destitution. And so I think that they kind of represented like the nightmare shadow of our dreams. And I think it was hard to look at that. I also think that historically, and, and this narrative has come roaring back in the last few years, you know, our enemies portray us as pedophiles, you know, and they, they attack us as groomers. And I think that that has created a defensiveness historically within, within the queer community that if we pay too much attention to young people, like people will question it. Um, and so I think that that was sort of like an unconscious barrier that, that, that prevented people from wanting to really see the issue and, and, and pay attention to the issue. And then I think, you know, like I think we have to be real. Like the, the, the LGBT community, at least the white part of that community, has not been without racism. And uh, the majority of, of the, a disproportionate number, of, a highly disproportionate number of, of young people are, are, are youth of color. And I think that they also have not been at the forefront of, you know, historically our, our movement's concerns. And so I think that those three factors uh, combine to, to, to kind of create some blind spots. Yeah, I, I guess I would also suggest that there um, – because I know what you're saying about the, you know, come out and, you know, it'll all be hunky-dory, which was sort of something that came out, um, I'd say, in the last few decades. Uh, um, in my generation, there was almost this acceptance of oppression um, where, because every time you met a gay person, the question always was, how did you come out? What happened? What what happened? And many, many of those people were thrown out of their homes and everything else. And it wasn't like, oh, my God, we've got to do something about that. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah that's what happened. You know, it wasn't, you know, it, it, it was an acceptance of who we were. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book is your own uh, coming out. You were 13, and um, your father, when you came out to him at 22, did not react well. How did that affect you and influence your, your future activism? You know, I would actually say that, that the experience I had with my mother was more foundational in terms of driving me to this work than my experience with my father. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I started realizing I was gay when I was 13, which would have been about 1978. Uh, and it was weird at that time. There, there, there was the first like gay character on a TV show. Uh, Billy Crystal was playing like an openly gay character on soap, and my father wouldn't let me watch soap. Like he wouldn't let any of, of my, you know, we were banned from watching it because there was a gay character. And I was just like, you know, dude, Billy Crystal does nothing to me. You should like ban me from watching heavyweight boxing <laughs> matches or something. <laughs> but. You know, I, I started realizing that I was gay, you know, at the time that I started getting turned on by other guys, which was about when I was 13. Uh, I didn't come out until I was 22. And, yeah, when I – or I guess 21. I came out of maybe um, two months before my 22nd birthday. But um, when I told my father, he just uh, – 
he acted like he was okay with it when I told him, but then um, he told my mother that he was ashamed of me and he never wanted to have anything to do with me, and, and he never spoke to me again. Uh, he died uh, last year at the age of 93, and he hadn't spoken to me since 1987. Um, oh God. But, you know, my father was an emotionally distant man. Um, I think what was more formative for me, actually, was that my mother left my father and me and my brother when I was a small child, when I was four years old. And I think that that experience of, of feeling profoundly abandoned and rejected uh, was what probably created the, the psychological thing in me that so strongly identifies with, with what kids go through when they're, when they're you know, rejected by their families. Yeah. Like, like for me, um, like the, the thought that a kid is out in the street alone and nobody cares about them just is unbearable. Like, I can't, mm-hmm. like, like, it's hard for me to even cope with it. And I think that that's, a lot of that has to do with just, you know, with the experience of, of contending with my mother's abandonment. Yeah, no, it's, um, I'm sorry you went through that, but um, I love how you've taken it and made it your muscle to um to fight through the issue. Um, I want to pivot a little bit to, um, you know, you, you organized, you got the organization together. There was a woeful lack of beds in New York city for um, homeless LGBTQ youth and, and a fight with um, the governor's office on um, they kept slashing the budget and um, you got very publicly visible around that. Um, tell us about that conflict and how that's resolved, if it really has. You know, it's interesting. Though in my book, my editors were very uh, attentive to not being repetitive. So they cut out a fair amount of things that, that um, you know, they just felt like it was repetitive. You know, Cuomo came in in 2010 and in 2011 cut the state's budget for homeless youth in half. Uh, but six months earlier, uh, Bloomberg also cut the city's funding for homeless youth in half. And, and you know, that was actually the first time that I saw the, the power of Joe, my God, to do more than, than um, help us raise money, which was certainly a powerful and important thing. But Bloomberg had cut the funding in half. At that point, there were 250 beds in the city, and there were 3,000 homeless youth in New York City that that had been found through a census. And um, I had organized a rally on the steps of City Hall where I had, like, young people sleeping on the steps, and I couldn't get any media attention. Like, nobody was paying it any mind. Uh, And then... It, this was when uh, there was that spate of horrible suicides that got so much attention around, you know, in 2010. Um, you know, it was just like every couple of weeks there was like a high-profile teen suicide. And uh, Dan Savage had started that, uh, that um, campaign called It Gets Better. Mm-hmm. And Mayor Bloomberg was the first uh, mayor to release an It Gets Better. He was the first uh, Republican to, to release an It Gets Better video. 
And when I found out, and he, in this video, he said, you know, and if you're not safe or accepted where you are, you should come to New York where you'll be accepted. Oh, jeez. And I oh couldn't believe that he had the chutzpah to do that, like right after slashing the funds for the most desperate, you know, LGBT youth in the city in half. And I put out a press release, sent it to Joe, my God. And, and for the weeks after that, if you Googled Bloomberg, it would come up like Siciliano slams Bloomberg, like, like I was some kind of <laughs> ultimate fighting warrior, like bashing Bloomberg. It was because the post that Joe put up got picked up all over queer America. Like every right. you know, news outlet ran the stories about like the outrage of it. And in fact, about two weeks later, uh, the city council was able to, to negotiate a restoration of the funding. Um, so, so yeah, that was like a time where Joe really showed me like the power of, 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 of his blog in terms of being able to be a, a real tool of advocacy for us. And then, uh, you know, a couple months later, when Cuomo took office, he put out a budget proposal that he was going to, you know, cut the funding for, for uh, homeless youth in, in, in New York State by 50%. And, um, yeah, I, I, I was really outspoken about that. And, again, I was having a lot of trouble getting media attention to, to pay attention. Like, you know, Cuomo had sort of signaled from the jump that he was going to bring us marriage equality. And so the gay press was sort of, you know, only wanting to focus on how great that was, not wanting to focus on, on him hurting homeless queer youth. Uh, but there was a a gathering in uh, San Francisco that Joe and I were both at uh, called uh, the the Hot Foundation would would have an annual gathering of um, of, of bloggers and journalists. Uh, and, and they would focus each year on um, you know, kind of pressing issues in, in the LGBT community. And, and that year they decided to focus on youth, I think largely because of all the suicides that happened the year before. And I brought one of the young people with me who had been thrown out uh, in, in a really violent situation. They've had their scalp ripped off. Uh, you know, their mother had attacked oh them off their scalp. And, and you know, they had run out of their apartment while their mother screamed, you'll be back, you'll be back, the faggots will never take care of you. You know, and so we got up in front of all these journalists and all these bloggers, and they told that story, you know, and then I said, look, it's like now, you know, Cuomo is attacking these kids, and, and you know, are, was the mother right? Are, are we going to take care of these kids or not? And um, the next thing you knew, there was just, like, stories everywhere, everywhere. In fact, it got listed as one of the defining issues of, of Cuomo's first year in office by um, um, Cuomo's Wikipedia page because there, there was so much media attention to, to the cuts that Cuomo right. did that year. So it was, for, for me, that was like it was a really educative process to like work with Joe and the other journalists and to look at how making the community aware of how our young people were being attacked, like enabled us to begin to show our power and to begin to stand right. up and protect our young people. Right. Um, I want to pivot to another place in your book, a little more heartwarming story than um, the, the Cuomo debacle. Um, B. Arthur, tell us about B and how she came through for you. 
Oh, Lord. <laughs> so, Arthur did a benefit for us in 2005. It was one of B's very last public appearances. And, you know, up to that point, we were a pretty small grassroots organization that very few people had heard of. That, that, that was about two and a half years into our existence. And, you know, at the time, we only had about 12 beds, and, and you know, we were small. And it was such a big deal for us to have a star, you know, an icon like B. Arthur, you know, come to us and, and put on this performance for us. And she made a bunch of statements in, in the media saying that, you know, it's just so unacceptable that queer youth are being thrown out of their homes and that, you know, the Alley Pernay Center is saving lives and that she would do anything in her power to help, uh, you know, queer youth who've, who've been rejected by their families. So then fast forward three years. Um, we were in the throes of the recession, the Great Recession, you know, 2008, 2009. Um, we were really struggling. Our, our donations had significantly dried up. Uh, some of our foundations weren't paying us. Uh, the, the city government was, like, very late in paying us. And I was just, you know, kind of dying. Like, I, our rents were months behind. Our lights were getting turned off. And I was really feeling like the Alley Fernet Center was on the precipice of going under. And there was a, a moment where I was driving to work, and one of my coworkers called me and said that we'd just gotten a call from one of our landlords saying that if we didn't bring our rents up to date, immediately they were going to evict us. And I got so stressed out that I got out. I couldn't drive. Like, I got out and was just kind of walking up and down the side of the road, like, <laughs> praying to, to everybody I could think of. Uh, you know, I'm a... I used to be a monk, so I'm a you know I'm a Catholic boy, and um, you know I believe in the saints. <laughs> so I, I was praying to everyone I could think of. And, you know, I prayed to Ali. I prayed to anybody I could think of that might be in heaven that was caring about us. And I put B. Arthur in there because she had just died uh, a few months earlier. You know, and I knew she cared about us. When I got to my office. Uh, there was a message on my machine from a close friend of hers, the film score person, Billy Goldenberg, saying that he wanted me to produce her memorial service at a Broadway theater. You know, and I was like, Billy, I'm honored, but, you know, I run a homeless youth program. Why do you want me to produce a Broadway show? I don't know anything about that. And, and he was like, you know, really, you would be a figurehead producer. We want to have tax-deductible donations to put on a good show. And we figured it would make sense to ask you because the Alley Fernet Center is at the top of the list of beneficiaries in B's will. And that was how I found out that she left us $300,000, which basically, like, saved us during the recession. You know, I was, wow. it got us above ground. And um, it was this just amazing moment. And to you know, show Carl, my thanks Carl, to Carl, B and, and to honor what she did for us, I... Um, the first building that we ever bought, we named the B. Arthur residence. So now there are 18 young people living in a house named after B. Arthur and honoring the kindness that she did for our young people. Yeah, that's awesome. And a really important Carl, I was at that memorial. Yeah, Joe, I, I oh. got like, you know, nine, I think they gave me nine seats that I could invite people to. And since 
Joe had been such a great friend to us. Joe got one of those nine seats. Yeah. Yeah. I should recall oh, Joe well, hanging out with Angela Lansbury or something like that. I did get a great picture with the great Angela Lansbury. Oh, my God. That's, uh, I I wrote about her in The Blade when she passed. Um, you know, that's that's awesome. Um I want to I want to pivot a little bit. Um, uh, you mentioned having been a monk, and um, that that isn't um, ignorable in the book. Um, you make reference to the fact that Jesus is the God of the outsiders, and at another point in the book, you make a comment at the root at its root, the crisis of LGBT youth homelessness is a crisis of religion. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a real tension that kind of goes through the book because, I mean, this may seem crazy or paradoxical or something, but I would say that it was my religious beliefs that drew me to the work. Um, you know, the Alipanay Center is not a religious organization by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, you know... I was taught that God is on the side of the poor and the outcast and that God, you know, is that Jesus hung out with sex workers and um, that people who are marginalized and considered unacceptable in society are the ones who are, who are the closest to God. So that's something that I always believed. And when I saw like the unbelievably horrible ways these young people were treated you know, it just made it so clear to me that they needed to be protected and they needed to be housed and they needed to be supported. Uh, you know, and, and that, that that conviction comes out of my own religious convictions. But the paradox for me is that it's just so horrible to see how religion has created this climate where parents turn on their own children and throw them out into the streets. Um I mean, this is a staggering number, but when we do our intakes with our young people, when they first come to us, you know, we ask them, you know, well, why were you not safe in your home? Why did you have to leave your home? Uh, now, now, some of the young people don't leave their homes because of, of, of parental rejection. Sometimes it, it's, it's like, you know, the family was in extreme poverty or the parents had severe mental illness or something like that. But for the, for the youth that were put out because of their parents, you know, you know most of our youth, come to us because their parents put them out or, or made them so unsafe in their homes that they had to flee. And when we, when we ask them why they weren't safe in their homes, 90% say it's because of their parents' religious beliefs. Mm. And so, yeah, it's like the crisis of queer youth homelessness is a crisis of religion. Uh, the fact that, that you know, a queer youth is eight times more likely to experience homelessness than a heterosexual youth is because of religion. It's because religion has made people view queer people as sinful, shameful, evil, unacceptable, and parents internalize that, and they're not able to cope when, you know, it, the parents who give credence to that have a really difficult time. You know, and some parents are able to say, yeah, you know, I, this is crazy. I choose my child over, over these, you know, hateful messages. But an awful lot of parents don't know how to do that. And uh, they, they internalize those messages and they believe that their children are, are sinful and shameful and abominations. And 
I could sit here for 20 hours just telling you stories that, that the young people have told me, you know, about, you know, being cast out in the name of God. And it, it, it makes me sick. Right. Yeah. No. Likewise. Um, so I want to. I want to. Before we go too much further, I want to find out for people listening. One, where can they get the book, um, and what else can they do when they're awakened to the needs of this this cause, which is a nationwide um, cause? Um, how can they get involved and make a difference? Sure. So. In terms of, of uh, the book, uh, the book comes out on, on May 21st, but it is available for pre-order now, and so you can go wherever books are sold uh, through pre-orders, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, uh, all those places. Uh, if you just Google uh, Making Room, you don't even have to remember my whole name, just put in Making Room or Making Room Carl, it'll come up, and, and it'll, you know, you'll see where you, you can pre-order. And, you know, I, I would like to just make a little appeal to folks. Um, you know, uh, when you're a first-time author, pre-orders are really helpful in terms of getting um, uh, bookstores to, to, to order the book, in terms of also getting, uh, like, you know, newspapers and, and media outlets to, to um, review the book. So so I am hopeful that people will do some pre-ordering. Um now, in terms of the broader issue, I mean, you know, the Alley Furnace Center is my heart and my child. <laughs> and so, you know, I would certainly appeal to folks to consider uh, helping out the Alley Furnace Center. Uh, you can go to our website, aliefurnacecenter.org. That's A-L-I-F-O-R-N-E-Y Center, C-E-N-T-E-R.org. Uh, it'll show you how you can donate. It'll show you how you can get involved as a, as a volunteer, as an advocate. Um, now, something else that we do and that you'll see on our website is uh, we are working with organizations around the country and around the world who are developing housing for homeless queer youth in their local communities. And so our, our website can also be a resource where you can, like, see what might be being done in your own community, in your own area. But I would certainly encourage people to to locally support programs that are getting up and running for, for youth in their communities. Uh, we're working with about uh, 40 organizations around the country who are uh, developing or have already opened up housing for homeless queer youth. Uh, we're working with organizations in the Black Hills of South Dakota, you know, in, in Oregon, in Washington State, in, in uh Oklahoma and, and all all across the country, a lot of groups that, in the South, that, you know, in the Southern states, have started opening up programs, and it's so needed to be there. Uh, so, yeah, I you know I, I think you can go to our website. You can also just Google your community and, and homeless LGBT youth and see what comes up. Uh, but a lot of these organizations are very, you know, grassroots, very poorly funded, and uh, you know would benefit from from support. Uh, can I mention something? Uh, sure. In two months, the Alley Furnace Center is going to be closing uh, on a beautiful building in Harlem, uh, which we're going to call our Trans Mansion. And, and, you know, we house about 150 young people a night, but we've dedicated 18 of those beds for uh, trans and non-binary young people. And I think my book launch is going to be happening at that site. And... Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm excited that, that um, 
we're able to have this beautiful building for our trans youth who have suffered so much and so badly in the streets. Uh, and when I think about what Ali and Ali's friends went through, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of symbolizes the journey that we've been on together to kind of lift up the most marginalized young people and, and, and uh, protect them and treat them like they're worthy of being loved. Well, everything right you're doing is so important and fantastic. Um, I want to thank you both for actually mostly for being who you each are um, and your absolute contribution to kids, to the LGBT community as a whole, um, and to just um, humanity and doing the right thing. Um, that is all we have time for today. Um, so, again, thank you both for being who you are and for coming on and sharing this with us today. Um, again, for the listeners, My the budget. book is Making Room, and you can find that as Carl shared anywhere they are selling books. Please do pre-order it. It is well worth it. It is a fascinating read and um, something that will not only hit hard, but inspire you to want to do more in your own life. Um, for Rated LGBT Radio, thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back again next week with um, another great show. I uh, don't know quite yet what it is, but uh, I can guarantee you it will be great. For all of us, um, thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you again very, very soon. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. <laughs> <laughs>